Joe Creason tells the story about an elderly mountain farmer in a mule-drawn wagon who had been involved in an accident with an automobile. And he was suing the driver seeking reparations for his personal injuries suffered. The defendant's attorney probed, isn't it true that after the accident that you said you never felt better in your life? Well, the claimant began, that morning I got up and hitched up my mule, put my hound dog in the wagon, and give us a yes or no answer to my question, interrupted the attorney. At this point, the, the judge stepped in and directed the lawyer to let the, the farmer answer in his own way. Well, the claimant began again. That morning I got up, hitched up my mule, put my hound dog in the back of the wagon, just got over the rise of the road when this big car barreled into my rear end. My mule was knocked to one side of the road, my dog to the other, and I was pinned under the seat. Directly, a policeman came along, seen my mule had its leg broke, and he pulled out his pistol and shot him dead. He went over to my dog, seen it was hurt real bad, and shot him, put him out of his misery. Then the farmer continued, he came over to me and asked, well, how are you feeling? And sure enough, I said, I never felt better in my life. When the Bible says that the Lord loves a cheerful giver, it isn't talking about manufacturing some sort of a phony joy, but it's describing a, a real, actual excitement, a, a response of gratitude that comes from putting the Lord first in your finances. It says, each one should give what he has decided to give in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If we approach our finances concerned only with the here and now, we won't be prepared for the future. And it's wise to have investments and prepare for retirement, but beyond that necessary step of preparation, there's an even greater responsibility to utilize the money God has entrusted to us and invest eternally in projects and people that will extend its impact and outlast its ordinary shelf life and ultimately live on and on. Invest eternally or your return won't last forever. Such investment into eternal markets requires minimal risk but maximum faith. And it's on that that we're going to focus today. I want you to see that when life ends, the only thing you'll have left is what you have invested with the Lord. For the past three weeks, we've been on a spiritual journey together as a church toward becoming rich toward God. We've examined the parable Jesus told of the, the rich fool who said, this is what I'll do. I'll, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and I'll store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So today is our Faith Promise Commitment Sunday for for those who call Batesville their, their church home. 
And faith promise commitments are best made after a time of prayer. And we remember this. You may know what you now have, but only God knows what you will have to give to his work in the coming year. As we prepare to make our, our faith promise commitments in a few minutes, we've been challenged to prayerfully ask, Lord, how much would you have me give to your work through BCC in 2022? And our text today of 1 Timothy 6 can help us answer that question. I can't answer that question for you, and you can't answer that question for me. Let's begin reading in in verse 6. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. It goes on in verse 17, it says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Verse 7 that we just read says it well, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. There was a, a grim reminder throughout history, this, this statement, a shroud, a, a burial garment, has no pockets. And that somber saying has been updated in the slogan, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You, you can't take it with you. And so it's wise to send some ahead, to lay up treasure in heaven, to invest in the eternal. And that's where the real financial security lies. So as we unpack this, pack, this passage from 1 Timothy 6, I, I want us to consider four quick questions. Question number one, how will your choices now affect your life later? God wants to be our partner and handling the material wealth that he has entrusted to us to steward. God doesn't need our money, but he's using our money to teach, our, teach us spiritual lessons about faith, about reliance on him, about contentment, about gratitude. Christian stewardship is not so much a fundraising exercise as it is a character-building exercise for the Christian. Does God come first in my life is the question he wants us to ask ourselves. Let me tell you a story about a, a lady in our church in, in Dublin. Her, her name was Pat Moitis. And, and more than anything, Pat wished her husband Frank would join her each week for worship. He, he went to the Catholic church. She worshiped at the Christian church. and She would gently invite him. They had a good marriage, and she just wanted to share her experience in the Lord with him. 
but Frank wouldn't join her at church. After Pat died, I sat with Frank, a broken man, in their living room, planning the funeral service for his beloved bride. And Frank told me with regret, Patty always wanted me to go to church with her, and now I can't. And through his tears, he committed, I'll be there Sunday. I commended him and said, I, I know that would make Pat very happy. And what he said next surprised me. He pulled out her box of offering envelopes and promised she looked forward to bringing her tithe to the Lord each week. And since she can't do that, I'll be there and I'll continue to give her offering for her. And he did. Faithfully, week after week, without fail, he sat where she formerly sat and he gave her gifts on her behalf. But it gets even better. Frank committed his life to living for Christ and I had the privilege of immersing him and he began to carry two offering envelopes after that. One for Pat and one for himself. Although separated now on earth, they both will spend eternity with Christ because the choices you make now affect your life later. One poet put it like this, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Question number two, where is your treasure? I want to encourage parents and grandparents, you can never start too soon to teach your children to be givers. When I was seven years old in grade school, I was given two quarters for allowance and told I should give a quarter to God and I could keep a quarter for spending and saving. And I had my own set of offering envelopes and I'm sure I gave high blood pressure to some church treasurer charged with that tedious task of record keeping, tracking my 25 cents a, a week gift for the annual giving records. But it developed within me a habitual, systematic approach to the discipline of giving back first to God. At that time, each Monday after school, I would take the other quarter and ride my bike to Burnham's Pharmacy on Glenway Avenue to buy a pack of Topps baseball cards for a nickel. And then I would sit at the soda fountain examining the new cards while eating a single dip chocolate ice cream cone in a sugar cone, which I could purchase for a dime. Then I would go next door to Conrad's Bakery and buy an iced brownie with pecans for a nickel. Being health conscious, I wanted to be certain that I'd covered both of the major food groups, ice cream and brownies. I would thumb through my baseball cards and shove the good cards in my pocket to keep or trade, and the other discards were promptly placed in the spokes of my bike with clothespins to produce an impressive illusion of a roaring motorcycle approaching. Well, fast forward ahead from that age to the summer before my freshman year of high school, I attended a Christ in Youth conference, and while there, we were asked to make financial commitments that would help support that ministry. At the time, I was 14 years old. I was seeking a job. I had had an interview, but I didn't have the assurance of a job yet. 
But in faith, I committed $8 a month to be given to CIY. When I returned home from CIY, I learned that a nearby restaurant had called and offered me a job as a busboy, earning the current minimum wage of $1.50 an hour. And while I wasn't going to get rich, God had responded to my step of faith and provided me with the sufficient income to cover my $8 a month commitment. Time and time again, I've seen God work in my life, in the lives of other individuals, in the lives of church members to respond with blessing when we take him at his word and faithfully trust him to provide for our needs. We're specifically challenging Christ followers of Batesville to practice the biblical principle of tithing, giving the first 10% of one's gross income back to the Lord through his church as an act of worship, reliance, and gratitude. And this practice has a valuable domino effect in our, on our entire lives. One thing it does is tithing strengthens our devotion to God. I think a second thing it does is the discipline of tithing helps us eliminate unwise spending habits. I think a third thing that tithing does is it helps us stay on track spiritually. When we put our our treasure where God wants it to be, our hearts will follow. That's what, what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This discovery of tithing is the epiphany that I'm better off living on 90% of my income with God's blessing than I am living on 100% of my income without God's blessing. And God instituted a system of tithing to underwrite the cost of, of ministry. And this predates the local church. This practice has roots dating back to Melchizedek in Genesis 14, some 4,000 years before Christ was born. Very simply, tithing is giving that first 10% of one's income back to the Lord. So if you're enabled to earn $25,000 a year, a tithe of that means $2,500 a year, about $50 a week. If you're making $50,000 a year, that means a tithe is giving $5,000 back to the Lord, about $100 a week. If you're blessed to earn $100,000 a year, that means giving $10,000 annually as a tithe to the Lord, about $200 a week. The tithe was the starting place for even the poorest Jew. There were offerings shared above and beyond the tithe, and most of us have experienced God's generous bounty. He has supplied our needs, And he's given us much beyond the bare essentials. And we each have a responsibility to grow, to exceed the tithe. The the Macedonian Christians did. They gave themselves first to the Lord. The tithe is a good place to begin for a Christian, but it's a bad place to end. As we grow in our dedication and worship to God, we will grow in our giving to God. Putting God first in our finances shows his priority in our lives. Giving to God first shows our trust and dependence on him. I like this prayer. Lord, I commit our finances to you. 
Be in charge of them. Use them for your purposes. May we be good stewards of all that you give us. I pray that we will learn to live free of burdensome debt. Where we have not been wise, bring restoration and give us guidance. Show us, each, show us each of us how we can help increase our finances and not decrease them unwisely. Lord, help us to remember that all we have belongs to you and for us to be grateful for it. Question number three, what can I do to please God? And the answer is found that when we take God at his word and are willing to trust him with our lives, he says in, in Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So by trusting and putting our faith in him, relying on him to provide, that lets him know that we, we, we trust him. It's a definite faith walk with God into the future, which only he clearly sees. I've been asked, how much should I commit? Or what if I don't have a job? Or what if I don't know how much I will make next year? And really, no one knows the answer to those questions. Only God. Let me flip the question a bit. Instead, let me ask, how much would you like to make? Then make your faith promise reflecting a tithe or more of that figure as you covenant with God, asking him to provide that income. And if he provides it, you'll return it to his storehouse. And I've seen God work in different ways. Sometimes it's in the form of providing a new job or a, a pay raise or a, a bonus, a chance to work some extra hours uh, to get extra pay. Maybe you inherit some, some money. There's a sale of a, an item that, that you've had and, and you liquidate. Maybe it's an unexpected insurance refund check. But through this partnership with God in the coming year, you're asking him to provide unseen money so that you can give more generously to him. Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God has this when we trust him. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In what is your trust? Trusting God is in your finances. It's not a frightening experience. It's a rush of relying on God to provide in his timing. It's exciting. It produces joy. And as we watch him provide, our faith is strengthened. And in the weeks to come, as you embark on this faith journey, tell me the stories of how God has met your needs, how he has provided for you. And we'll give him the glory as he makes a way and provides what you need. It is exciting to watch. Dwight Moody said it like this, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven, but a lot of faith will bring heaven to your soul. And faith is allowing God to be your GPS, directing your route in your turns, but trusting him to bring you to your destination on time. Jesus came to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. So are, are you a comfortable giver? Do you benignly write down a comfortable amount that you can safely afford to give without any angst or, or pressure? Or do you step out in faith 
stretching and relying on God and, and waiting to see how he will provide. There's one more question this passage asks us. Question number four, is there a way to avoid regret later? Does it make any sense to say we serve God and give money to accomplish his work and yet remain passive and distant toward people, toward their hurts, toward their pains? Our attitude and our actions define generosity and they combine to express the compassion of Jesus in a powerful way. The good we do today, the money we give today, the people we care for today are all a part of the treasure. You can choose to be generous during your lifetime or you can wait and be generous when you die. A day is coming when each of us will give everything away. The, the one way to truly win in this life is to use what we have to advance the kingdom of God. And when we place a priority on advancing the kingdom, we are laying up treasure in heaven. Our gratitude for what the Lord has done for us creates a, a warm enthusiasm to see the kingdom advance to help bless other people too. But William James observed, the greatest use of life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. Let me tell you another story. Edwin Hayden, for years, was the editor of Christian Standard Magazine. And as a college student, I wanted to pick his brain and learn from him. And so uh, on my college student income, I took him out to eat for a roast beef sandwich at Roy Rogers on Glenway, the equivalent of a trip to Arby's. And that day, he gave me some valuable investment advice that I've always remembered. It, it wasn't a stock or a mutual fund tip. This is what he told me. Jeff, the greatest investment you can make is in people. And he was right. It's not in programs. It's, it's not in buildings. It's in people. Lives changed for eternity. People are an eternal investment. But we have a limited opportunity to sow the seeds and reap that harvest. And if we invest in eternity, we will feel an unsurpassed joy that we truly have made a difference. When I get to that wonderful city and the saints all around me appear, I want to hear somebody tell me it was you who invited me here. 2 Corinthians 5.15 states, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus said in Matthew 16.26, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? In our country, especially uh, with the affluence that we're accustomed to, we must daily do battle with the mistress of materialism who connects our self-worth and our security to the abundance of our possessions. If we don't do battle, otherwise we will give some to God but he will never occupy the sovereign lordship position of first place in our lives. And so the key is to give God your very best now. 
In May of 1995, Randy Reed, a 34-year-old construction worker, was welding on top of a, a nearly completed water tower outside of Chicago. And according to the writer Melissa Ramsdell, Reed unhooked his safety gear to reach for some pipes. When a metal cage slipped and bumped the scaffolding he stood on, the scaffolding tipped. Reed lost his balance. He fell 110 feet, landing face down on a pile of dirt, just missing rocks and construction debris. A fellow worker called 911, and when paramedics arrived, they found Reed conscious, moving, and complaining of a sore back. Apparently, the fall didn't cost Reed his sense of humor as the, the paramedics carried him on a backboard to the ambulance. Reed had one request don't drop me. Well, the doctors later said that Reed came away from his fall with only a bruised lung. I think sometimes we can resemble that construction worker. In the past, God has protected us from harm from some 110-foot falls, but we're still nervous about the the three-foot heights, trusting him with our finances. The God who saved us from the pain of hell and the power of death can provide us financially what we need if we trust him, if we give him the first portion of our income. Many of you have trusted him for the really big things. Why not make 2022 the year in which you trust him with your finances? You allow him to truly be the Lord of your life. And when you surrender that priority to him, you'll experience the rush of stepping out in faith. Would you take God at his word and give him first place in your finances? Would you determine before I pay any of my creditors, the very first bill that I will cover is to pay God and partner with him financially? This morning, are you ready to commit your life to Christ? to confess your faith in him, to put him first in every arena of your life, to baptize your entire being in surrender to him, to make him the Lord of your thoughts, your actions, your time, your talents, your friendships, your finances. Would you take Jesus at his word and give him the first place in your life. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing a song of response. If you need to speak with one of us, please come forward as we